the once flowing well of early stage investment in the restaurant industry has slowed to a trickle. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, the executive editor with Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, I talk with Jeff Brock, the managing partner with the private equity firm Hargett Hunter Capital Partners. We talk about the market for investing in smaller chains. A few years ago, investors couldn't get enough of these companies, pumping money into small, fast, casual concepts, giving them massive valuations, all in the hope of latching onto the next Chipotle. But few have struck gold, and there have been numerous failures, such as the sandwich chain Taylor Gourmet. Brock talks about the state of the market and the challenges that many regional companies have had in replicating that success in newer markets. And he also gives his views on what kind of chains can attract investor dollars today, as well as what executives can do to make their concept more marketable. Later in the podcast, I give my thoughts on the recently concluded National Restaurant Show. First, here's Jeff Brock. Okay, I am here with Jeff Brock. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, good. So uh, tell me a little bit uh, about what you're seeing in terms of of, of uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions, specifically um, a couple of years ago, uh, companies, uh, you know, investment firms like yours couldn't seem to get enough of, of growth chains. Uh, it's my sense that things have, have really slowed down. And am I right or, or not? No, I think you are. I think you are correct. Um, it feels as though there's certainly been a softening in the market. Um, of course, you know, the the size of the market, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about mm-hmm. some of the categorizations and stratifications of of the size of some of these businesses. I think I think the size of the business uh maybe has more of an in- impact today on the on the uh, uh on the uh, uh preference of some of uh, some of the sponsors and the private equity folks out there in particular. Um but uh, but definitely uh little bit of uh, deals move slower, and um, I think folks are being more selective uh, depending upon uh, however it is they may define their their criteria mm-hmm. is um, uh, I mean do you think I, I think that one of the what we've seen is is we've seen a lot of uh, certainly challenges in the fast casual space in some cases we've seen concerns about uh, uh, overgrowth in, in certain categories, not all of them, but certain categories and a number of challenges. Do you think that sort of kind of uh, uh, soured some investors on the sector or, 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 or not? Yeah, I think the impact of some of those issues may have um, really may have uh, – it may be more of a stall and I think a lot of folks, you know, have have some problem assets, have some things they need to potentially work through. And so the kind of the the, the derivation of some of the challenges um, has taken a little bit of liquidity out of the market. Um, I don't think there's necessarily, you know, the bloom is off the rose yet, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, I uh, I just think that some of the folks that were most interested may be having to deal with some, you know, with some problems that have come from. And sometimes rapid expansion, um, you know, the multiples uh, that were being paid uh, were were quite high. And, you know, there, on one hand, you can have the rationalization that when you, when you pay a high multiple, if you have a, have a small or a low store count, it um, doesn't take very long to grow out of that multiple with just the opening of a couple of new stores. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge there, of course, is quite often um, you're dealing with 
uh, particularly in the emerging side of the equation, and this is, we're talking about kind of a lower middle market, mm-hmm. quite often you're dealing with management teams, while quite talented, maybe not necessarily experienced um, in that growth and particularly growth outside of maybe a home market or a home region. But, you know, for the investor, the only way to, to mm-hmm. uh, almost get back to even after paying that, uh, after paying that multiple is to rely on that growth. And so you, yeah. you can't, you kind of, you know, accentuated and emphasize the risk, if you will. Right, right. Well, I think that we saw, I mean, we saw some really, really high prices some extremely high multiples paid for a lot of different companies, um, and uh, and and frankly, um, and you know, and that's put a lot of pressure on them, uh, you know, to grow rather intensely, um, and and maybe at rates where they were probably not ready or certainly experienced for, um, and uh, in many cases, it sort of kind of led to them to do things such as. In accepting high uh, rents uh, for space and, and and things like that, and and um, and then they kind of you know uh, you know it, you know grew faster than than maybe they really should have, and um, and the result was was some pullback, and and we've seen some kind of spectacular declines uh, from some of these companies that received money not that very long ago, and and uh, I think. Um, you know, maybe it didn't sour some people on the sector, but certainly some some investors that had been putting money into the sector have definitely pulled back. We we uh, we have joked for years that the uh, the people making the most money in the restaurant business right now are landlords, and uh, and we keep we keep thinking that's gonna, that's going to change, <laughs> but uh, but we. Maybe we're starting to see the beginning of some softening there. I, I do believe uh, I do believe we probably are on the front end. We we might have seen some of the peak, but you are correct. The uh, the um, that pressure to grow has just uh, and sometimes fed a cycle of uh, fed a cycle um, of uh, needing to get great space. And when there are so many great concepts, and you know, like they are, there are a ton of just fantastic concepts with. When there are so many great concepts, um, you're now having to compete with those concepts for very limited uh, space, particularly in new development, and um, can't help but uh, can't help but you know increase the uh, increase the cost to build. So mm-hmm. uh, you you uh, I think you're you're 100 percent correct. Right. Yeah. Do you see? Uh, well, I, mean, I think, think the other issue is is that. Um, some of the companies that end up getting money are regional concepts. And one of the things that, that we've, we've noticed is that for those regional concepts, the concepts that, that may work well in, you know, in Florida, uh, for instance, or I don't know, the entire country of Canada, and then they try to move into a different market and they find they just can't, it doesn't have the same, it just doesn't have the same, uh, love uh, of the consumer base in those markets, or it, it certainly takes a lot longer uh, to generate that, or they they just can't quite get it. And and yet some of the money uh, that's behind some of these companies gets impatient, um, and uh, you know is banking on some of the multiple or some of the volumes that they had, that they've been getting in in their home market, and then they can't necessarily get it, you know, in in a different market. 
Um, and then it causes sort of problems on its own, uh, which, uh, you know, was, it, I don't know, it's just an interesting phenomenon, I think, with, with what we had, what we saw really from the period from 2013 to 2017, where we had all this money being thrown at these small companies and then they can't, you know, quite make it as, you know, when, when they try to grow outside of their, their core markets. I think you're seeing. Uh, I think I think you hit on a few things there that mm-hmm. kind of all come together. First of all, um, I think that um, far too often uh, investors and and management teams don't necessarily realize that I mean, you're, you're dealing with a genuine J curve mm-hmm. when you uh, when you're making an investment in one of these concepts because typically, and let's just let's set let's set the expectation for a moment. Let's say you know, maybe less than 20 units, um, just more of a more of a generalization. I recognize, but but generally less than 20 units, particularly less than 10. You, know, you 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 don't have the processes and the systems and the disciplines and the rigors and technology. You haven't had the time, nor have you had the uh, the capital to invest in such things. And many times, you're dealing with fantastic entrepreneurs who've created a phenomenal experience and a phenomenal concept, but don't necessarily know that, you know, an HRIS may even exist mm-hmm. and certainly haven't had the time to implement it. And so, so you have the, you have effectively the compounding impact of uh, capital that has a clock on it being married to the fact that the first few years really should be more about building a platform and building a foundation and doing what's right to to create a situation for that concept to grow over a longer period of time. Um, You know, married to the point that you made, which is, uh, you know, when you take a concept um, outside of a home market, uh, you, you need to be prepared and model and have the capital to withstand um, pretty significant less uh, less average unit volumes and therefore weaker uh, unit economic models. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the concept won't ultimately resonate and ultimately grow, but you know I will say that it is pretty surprising that um, you know that I recognize you know bankers uh, and not being critical at all of our friends uh, of our banking <laughs> friends, but you know they 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 have a financial approach and a perspective and you look at the spreadsheet and you have 20 stores doing x well of course the next 20 will do x well the next 20 may do x but it you know it may take three to five years um you you can't necessarily model average unit volume year one let alone model you know north of average unit volume Mm -hmm. uh which you know sometimes you'll see and so you know when we when we model we'll typically Haircut, um, uh, you know, we'll haircut our, uh, our, uh, our our starting assumptions much as thirty to forty percent sometimes, and uh, and you have to give give that concept time to grow in new markets. But but that takes more patience. Quite often, maybe that takes a different type of capital. Um, but the the result of that. You know, is that you're not you know, fooling yourself, you're not fooling your capital providers, whether that be equity or debt, and you know, you're setting yourself up to to be able um, to uh, to succeed over maybe a little bit of a of a longer period of time. But it's very hard to just presume that a 
local or regional chain is going to do consistent uh, and similar averaging and volumes uh, as you you know as you open up in new markets. And those that do you know get a obviously get a, a quite a premium. And there certainly are some out there that um, that have been able to you know, let's say out of their first 20 units actually be in four or five different markets and have the performance of those markets perform quite consistently and predictably. And you know, they're, they're not all like that, though, obviously. Mm-hmm. So um, as an investor, as somebody that is, has, has made a, a few deals in your lifetime, I mean, do you look uh, at the industry a little bit differently today than you did maybe even three years ago, given, say, uh, so when, you, when you're looking to make a deal, and, and really in the past three years has been uh, maybe only almost a sea change in the restaurant industry because we've seen a ton of, uh, you know, we, with, with the, the uh, influx of delivery and the growth in, in, in takeout sales and, um, and, and, and the clear need of technology, especially in any sort of uh, any sort of take any sort of fast casual or, or quick service restaurant. Are, are you looking at the industry different at all today as an investor than you did a few years ago? I mean, do you look at at, at different types of concepts, uh, you know, do, to make sure that they can, um, you know, that they have the ability to to win with customers when uh, with with delivery or, or things like that? Absolutely, I think uh, I think that. You know, look, we're, we we all are always evolving and always learning, and certainly trying to be you know both reactive and proactive with um, with industry trends. And so, you know, you touched upon delivery. Obviously, delivery has a significant amount of uh, of cascading impacts on our industry. Um, and you know, for us, it it, it boy it can be something as simple as you know, ingress and egress out of out in and out of a unit with uh, with a special doors and special setups for uh, for to go and for pickup so that it doesn't uh, impede your traditional line. Obviously, you may need less square footage in the in the dining area. Maybe you need more square footage in a kitchen. Maybe you can you know maybe you need one big kitchen in a market um, that can serve as a kind of a mini central kitchen commissary whatnot. There's Obviously, there's all sorts of strategies. I do think that you, know, you 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 drew that line and talked more specifically about fast casual. You know, I think for us, one of the things maybe that's made us a little different um, over the last few years is we we while we certainly love many of the attributes that fast casual have, um, we haven't been you know, ex- exclusively a fast casual investor. Um, we have prioritized casual and polished and you know, quick service as much, just as much as there's there's been in, in in many cases fast casual have outperformed, and so obviously you know that's going to attract more attention. But um, but uh, for us, I think that uh, I think that the, those macro trends you know get married to the different food categories and and um, uh, and service models. Uh, and so we have to figure out uh, the concepts that are most differentiated in, you know, for our for our qualitative filters, because obviously most everyone's quantitative filters are pretty much the same. Take take any KPI you'd like and throw it into a bag and shake it up and, you know, it's going to come out as cash on cash return. 
And, um, and that's really, you know, we all want exceptional cash and cash returns, which, you know, I'll go back to, uh, to the points you made previously. That's why, you know, some of those struggles, that J curve, the, the growth in new markets is why obviously you want to invest in you know, the most exceptional cash on cash returns to give yourself that cushion. Um, because if you are going to have to model, a 30 or a 40% uh, average unit volume decline when you go to a new market. Well, if you're starting off in, you know, with $1.1 million of revenue in a fast cash flow model, and now you're thinking about something that looks more like 800 in a new market, that's a very, very different proposition than if you're starting off with, you know, $2 million of average unit volume and you have to hit that with a 30 or 40% discount. So, I, uh, I, uh, I think that, uh, I think for us, since we are, exclusively focused on restaurants. We don't invest in anything else. Um, we obviously rely very, very heavily on our uh, formal and informal operating partners and ecosystem. And uh, for us, you know, their capability to, to mold and to adapt to, to the, the, the trend in the industry are you know, very key for us to try to keep these concepts on the cutting edge, which, again, you know, kind of leads to the need not just for patients, but for capital. If you're a, an average eight-unit concept um, without a you know exceptionally strong capital partner, your ability to invest in that technology, your inv- ability to operationally uh, morph and operationally adjust to, to to what you need to be doing in the future, um, is very different than if you're you know, if you're partnered with someone who has both the capital and the capability to to help. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, uh, so, uh, tell what, what's the process like when, when you're looking at a potential investment, what, what are you looking for as, what are you looking for? Yeah, we, um, we, we, it'll sound, it'll sound cheesy (laughs) and it'll sound a little goofy, but, but we genuinely believe because of our singularity of focus. Um, and our commitment to the restaurant industry, that um, that we we like to say that we we cover the industry. We don't look for deals. Mm-hmm. The deals and the investments will come out of our commitment and our involvement inside of the industry. And so, because of you know, therefore that approach and our operating uh, uh, involvement, uh, it's a little bit easier to have conversations with. With potential partners one day in in other markets, um, because you know you might be talking about labor, you might be talking about real estate site selection, you might be talking about technology, as opposed to you know, just talking about capital. The capital needs will evolve from there. So for us, it's a little bit more about a a longer uh, term relationship, getting to know and see you know both the, the management team as well as the concept evolve a bit, um, and therefore we. You know, we try to get to know concepts and teams quite early in their quite early in their life cycle, and um, so therefore, for us, that process may be quite extended. Um, and then, you know, as when we're in the when we're in the process, we, as you can tell by my accent, you know, I, I'm from the I'm from the South, and it's not no uh, way, you know, it's not South Jersey, and so you know, our our thought about the world is. Can't help but be, you know, colored and uh, our lens colored a little bit by our personal experiences. And so we think about the world a little bit more 
um, I'd say balanced. You know, we, we speak on the qualitative side concepts that are quite approachable, maybe have less of a, of a singularity in its product offering, uh, maybe mitigate the, uh, the veto vote a bit. Um, you know, and they're as differentiated as possible. So, you know, for example, you know, a couple of our first investments, you know, original chop shop, we like to think has four day parts, you know, in addition to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, we do quite a robust juice and smoothie business on the shoulder periods and you know, kind of have a full snack day part. That's a very different than, you know, something that may come from a Chicago or a Boston or a New York or a Seattle. Um, you know, the, the, the density and the foot traffic and therefore the impact of that on throughput and the impact of those factors on an operating model in a metropolitan area is very different. And so we, we, while we, of course, you know, we still, we still love great concepts that come from those markets. And that's what we look for might be a little bit more balanced. You know, Bella Green, for example, has a, uh, has 50% lunch, 50% dinner, does 50% of its business during the weekday, does 50% of the business during the weekend. Um, so I think, I think for us that would be pretty differentiating. Uh, we're, uh, we, we look for things that may be a little bit more balanced and you know, work in markets like a Chattanooga or a Birmingham or a Raleigh, maybe more so than something that works in a San Francisco or a Seattle. Mm-hmm. So um, we've seen – you know, we've we've seen more investors recently in recent years that have sort of emerged to um, to um, have a more long term focus. You know, I mean, private equity firms have traditionally, you know, had this like five year time horizon, and it's always caused problems um, in the investment. You know, you know, when when an operator is, you know, is it. it you know, they, it causes problems because, you know, the private equity firm wants to get that return in five years and they may do various things uh, that are not good for the long-term health of the brand. Um, uh, so what, what's, the, what's the benefit of, of being, you know, of having more of a long-term focus? And, and do you ever, uh, I mean, as an investor, is there ever any kind of pressure to sort of look for, um, you know, a, 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 you know, a shorter term exit strategy or anything like that to try to generate those returns. Well, you, you know, the world is built on incentives and tell me mm-hmm. how the incentives align. And I can tell you about how people are going to behave. And so sure, in a more traditional fund structure, um, there were times where one cannot help but be incented by uh, the opportunity to, to, to sell something at a great price early. Um, that is, you know, that is the charge and that is the mandate of the investment manager in those situations. Um, I think the first part of your, the first part of your question and your, and your comments though, are, you know, uh, tie very much to the, 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 com- the conversation we were having earlier, particularly about the J curve. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to grow as fast as you think. Yeah, no model ever does. But in this particular, <laughs> but in in this particular industry, you, I do think you have kind of a again kind of a double impact. Not only are you having to, um, are you having to fight through uh, maybe a bit of a, you know of a of a consolidation and a slower launch, if you will, because of needing to build a system. You already are dealing with smaller number of units. Again, I'm defining this as kind of a lower middle market. 
And so, you know, you can generate 35% CAGR and still, you know, after four or five years, have 20 units. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you know, quite often to unlock the type of liquidity and to unlock the type of exit that, you know, is required and needed, um, you need to have, you know, potentially more than that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where, you know, patience in a way is, is dictated by where, you know, where, where the cycle is in which folks who are choosing to invest, quote unquote, down here, um, you know, kind of, kind of creates. Um, and then also, I think you have a, you do, you certainly have an influx of more family office capital, um, married to institutional capital right now that is a big fan of, you know, direct investing. You know, you hear a lot from, from institutional limited partners about co-invest, co-invest and, and we want direct deals, direct deals. And, um, and, and part of the benefit of a direct deal, of course, is that you can be a little bit more strategic uh, and targeted about your plan. And, you know, hopefully it's easier to recognize that you may be getting into a six, seven, or even eight-year hold period um, and uh, as opposed to that traditional, it's got to be in four or five years. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you're, as, a, as an investor, what's your advice to um, a, 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 an entrepreneur who is looking to find, you know, to, to find a, a, an investor to, to grow locations? What would you tell, what would you tell that, uh, what would you tell that entrepreneur? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think patience is phenomenally valuable. Um, you can do a lot more harm to your business than you may realize by forcing yourself to grow too quickly. Um, you may not even believe it's too quick, but um, you know there's a there's a natural conundrum that creates itself in this industry. You know, if you if you have a few you know great units, um, you want to open another and another. Uh, you do that, and you know you're generating store level cash flow. You also may get to a point where you just can't open but so many others without obviously adding to your team and and, and creating more you know resources to support the work. Um, but if you took that store level cash flow and invested in a team, well now you have no more capital to open new stores, mm-hmm. and so it can you know you 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 become quite a victim of your success because you continue to grow. You need help, but once you hire the help, you have to. You don't have any more money to open more stores. And I think that one of the one of the bigger mistakes that um, that some concepts may make is falling for the allure of franchising too early. Uh, franchising model is a fantastic model. It's the American dream, and it provides uh, you know uh, entrepreneurial uh, uh, talent to find each other. And, you know, to, to, to partner and, you know, you, you have the creator and then you have folks who are executing the creator's vision through a franchise model. It's fantastic. But, but when, you're, when you're young and you're evolving, the, the, you already have shown that you're really good at creating a concept and maybe running restaurants. Franchising is a completely different business. Yeah. And that just because you're good at running a restaurant, the skills required to run a franchise system are quite opposite um, and very different. And so I think you know we see you know a lot of uh, of 
of experiences where a, a um, uh, an entrepreneur believed that franchising was in effect a free money and an easy cost of capital and in the risk that it actually introduces into your system um, and the distraction that it introduces because you are morally and legally obligated to support that franchise system. So it isn't like you, you know, you're getting free capital. You need to reinvest that capital in building a team as well. It's just a different type of team. It's a team that supports a franchise instead of a business. I would say just caution yourself to not necessarily want unit growth for the sake of unit growth and to do things that, that ultimately may not be your strength. Yeah. There, there are a lot of investors uh, up and down the uh, spectrum uh, that believe that franchising is basically free money. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it comes with a cost and, and that cost might be uh, your brand. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's to do it well um, does require some investment and some major effort. And, and I, I, I agree. I think some, some, some people tend to think that that franchising is just, it's just, let's just start franchising and grow this thing to a thousand units in a couple of years and, and, and we'll be fantastic. But, um, but, but it's not. So, no. um, sir, uh, this was fantastic. I, I definitely appreciate uh, you joining us this week on the podcast. Well, well very honored and appreciate, uh, appreciative of the opportunity. Always nice to talk to you and uh, thank you very much. I recently attended the National Restaurant Association show in Chicago, which is run by restaurant business parent company Winsight. We heard two overarching concerns during the event, neither of which will surprise listeners of this podcast. One, of course, is labor costs, which is a massive issue at the moment. Rising costs because of minimum wages or competition for workers has many chains worried about their margins. And given industry traffic challenges, you can't exactly raise prices because customers will go to your rivals. Next week, we will talk about a, with a pricing expert about how operators can handle these issues. Another issue is delivery. As any regular listener to this podcast knows, there are a lot of ideas regarding delivery, whether it's from third parties or self-delivery, single provider strategies, or multi-company plans. You may talk with 20 operators about delivery, in fact, and you'll get 20 completely different responses about tackling the issue. But both rising labor costs and the influx of delivery have played a role in the issues that seem to be keeping investors away from the restaurant industry. Both are putting pressure on margins, and they are demanding higher investment from owners. That makes it difficult to industry to invest in at the moment, and so many of the dollars that a few years ago were flowing into small chains seem to be on the sidelines because of this changing industry. And that's it for this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, which was edited by Christine Cawthon. Our work by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Pat Kobe, Heather Lally, Peter Romeo, and Sarah Rushworth. You can find this episode on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast, and you'll find other episodes there too. You may also find this uh, podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.